Okay, gentlemen, well, we'll, we'll go ahead and get started here. I'm sorry I'm running a few minutes late. Lost track of the time. So uh, tonight we'll transition from really, in a sense, the last two classes because the two sessions ago we were on the lost sheep and the lost coin, and then last week we were on the so-called prodigal son, really the two lost sons, wouldn't you say? And then the dishonest manager, chapter 16, which all should be read as a unit. Um, there should be no chapter break there. <laughs> and all of this should be read, really, I mean, f- frankly, 16 ought to be read just right along with 15 in Luke's gospel, all understood <clears throat> as one unit. As we're going to see, there's really no transition between the setting and thematically, they overlap and interweave quite a bit. So we'll pick up with the parable of the dishonest manager. Let's open up with prayer. Boy, we'll need it with this uh with this parable. We'll need it more than more than ever. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon our study. We pray that you would enlighten us by your Holy Spirit, that we might understand the words of your Son, that those words might cut our impenitence and create in us soft and living hearts receptive to your word. And they're also hearts ready to receive your gospel, the forgiveness of your sins, your graciousness, and your self-sacrifice on our behalf. Indeed, we rejoice that all our debts have been slashed by you, Lord Jesus, through your work on the cross. And we pray that in this forgiveness, in this revelation of grace of your Father's heart, our Father's heart, Uh, that you would inspire us to believe and entrust ourselves to your goodness and to live and do likewise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So as I mentioned just in preface, 16, that chapter break is probably the most misleading of the chapter breaks that we've encountered so far. What a chapter break tends to do in our minds is, okay, even though there might be some overlap of material, fresh start, new way of thinking, and that's just not the case here. So Jesus is in a group, and he's been addressing the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost boys, specifically to the Pharisees and scribes. His disciples are also present, and he says the content of the parable of the dishonest manager, to them. But as it turns out, he does so intentionally in the presence of and in the earshot of the Pharisees. We don't really learn the rationale for that until down the road. So the connections are obvious enough. um, Well, maybe I should say this, too. Um, In researching this, I was reminded of the great disparity of the way in which the church fathers read this. I I got to study three or four different documents, one an amalgam of what the church fathers have had to say about this particular text, and it's all over the place, and it's all across the board. 
I think they kind of generally lump into two categories. And I'll share those two categories with you. And I think that they're a both and. One category has to do with grace and the grace of God. And that's a continuation of the theme, obviously, of the lost boys in particular. The other category has to do with the use of money, which is a sub-theme in the lost boys. Because the youngest has taken all his money, spent it frivolously. The other received also his inheritance, but did it do him any good? He's every bit as embittered and thinks his father begrudges him so much as a goat. And so um, it's just a, money is just a subtext or wealth is just a subtext. And our Lord chooses that, I think, as a secondary theme to draw out. That'll become clear from the context that Luke gives us. That becomes a secondary theme. So those two themes continue, the grace of God and now the use, what is the proper use of money then? Because we've seen two really rather improper uses. One who spends it all profligately and wastes it, and another who holds on to all of it, but in a way that's utterly unprofitable for him or for his household. So at 16.1, we'll jump into it. He, Jesus, also said to the disciples, so again, now he's speaking to a narrower group. There was a rich man who had an oikonomos, so a, a manager of his house, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting. Now, this is diascorpizon, and this is the exact word we see in the parable of the prodigal son back in chapter 15, verse 13. So I'll reread that just so you can see the direct parallel and how it's unmistakable. 1513, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he, Dioscorpitzen, squandered his usia or property, his substance, in reckless esotos living. And so what you have here is an immediate verbal connection that you have, just as you have a father and a son, now you have a rich man and a manager, a superior and a subordinate. And the subordinate is also own wasting the superior's possessions or what was given to him by his superior. All right, there's a lot unspoken in this parable, and I'll try to draw that out. At verse 2, and he called him, so the rich man calls the manager and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Now, obviously, that's a rhetorical question. He's already determined that there's evidence that this man has been wasting his possessions. So he calls him and says to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account, literally the books or the ledger of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Now, maybe not obvious is what this man's options were, what the rich man's options were. You can think back to Matthew 18, and remember the parable of the unforgiving servant, so the king draws his managers together, and there's one who owes him 10,000 talents, I think it is. And 
the options presented there are he can throw him in prison. Later on, we learn that he could sell the man and his in order to recoup their costs. I mean, this all sounds very like draconian to us, but really it's not. So what's on the table for this rich man is he could imprison him to punish him. He could sell him and his wife and children, but he's not doing any of those things. So there's already implicit contextually a huge and enormous amount of grace that's going on because he just says, you're fired. I mean, which one of us would do that? If you, if you're the, if you're the owner of a company and the manager you put in place just spends a ludicrous amount on himself and is utterly frivolous with it. I mean, the least of what you're going to do is say you're fired. (laughs) And in this sense, you're fired is even kind of like, it's one of these places where the law and the gospel really just reconverge because you're fired is a condemnation, but it's also preventing him from further sin. So it is a blessing just to take what obviously he can't handle away from him. Well, that's reading a little deeply, but just superficially then, and what might not be immediately obvious to our eyes is the profound grace that the rich man has just shown the manager, unthinkable right off the start. And with with the setup being the father and his son in the previous parable, we're set to see this incredible grace on the part of the father for his lost son and incredible grace on the part of the rich man for his manager. Are you seeing those parallels? So they go hand in hand here. And that's why the first theme that carries over is this theme of grace. Okay, so the manager has some time to leave and go get the books, go get the ledger and return it to his master. Now, while he's got the books and while he's got the ledger, even though he's been formally and privately fired, he still has those in his possession. Everyone else would believe that he's still in possession of his office and still carries the same authority. And so he's going to take advantage of this point. Now, if you think that this guy's a scoundrel, you're right. So the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. Okay, this is a little bit like the boy in 15 and 16 of the previous chapter where a severe famine arises and he's hiring himself out to one of the citizens and he ends up longing to eat what the pigs are eating that he has been given to fed. No one's giving him anything. So he's at the end of his resources. And so there's a parallel here where he takes stock of himself and his own resources and comes up with a big zero. Okay. And then four is a pivotal, a pivotal moment. And it is very much parallel to 17 of the previous chapter. So let's look at 16.4. I have decided what to do 
so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So that's his plan to get out of the conundrum. It's parallel to verse 17 of chapter 15, where the son says, but when he, or Jesus says of the son, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So you see the plan and the plan put in place. Now, what's explicit in the verses that I just read from chapter 15 is, and I'll point this out one more time, when he comes to himself, he says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough? So what's explicit is the son recalls the graciousness and the goodness and the open-handedness of his father and then concocts his plan on the basis of that. The same thing happens here. It's not, it's just not as obvious. I have decided what to do, verse four of chapter 16, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Now he's just been completely, um, treated in a gracious manner by this rich man who's over him because he's not in prison and he and his family are not being sold. So he too is going to predicate his plan based on the fact that this guy is merciful and will continue to be merciful. Because as you probably know, he's going to just double down on his sinfulness and he's going to even thieve more away from his master. But he's going to bank on the fact that his master is still not going to throw him into prison. So it's kind of a perverse parallel to be sure, but that's the inner logic. Okay. Now the boy... I don't know why I keep calling him a boy. He's a young man. It's just a habit. The young man in chapter 15, uh, you can see a noble character in him. You can see that he's become humble and he returns humble. I don't think you can see, say the same for this, uh, manager. So there is, there are similarities, but there are key contrasts too. And in the end, the Lord's going to point this out in very stark and obvious terms. Okay, so his plan is he's going to ingratiate himself to others so that they will receive him into their houses. His plan isn't to stay with the rich man. His plan is to get hired on as the manager of these other houses. Verse 5 So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, now he does one by one, so so that this is all um, fitting his dastardly plans. They can't talk together. They can't see what's going on. He said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. So, uh, um. A measure of oil is like eight or nine gallons. So what is that? Eight or 900 gallons of uh, oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Now, these are details that are kind of important if you really like get down to the nitty gritty of this. I don't intend to because it's hard enough as it is. But suffice it to say, he wants it to be in their hand. 
that this isn't just some sort of internal cooking of the books. This is something that's done, that's public, that's ratified by both parties. And that's that's simply important because the amount that he's going to slash of the debt is going to be such that this, this person who owes him this is going to go home and be like, you'll never believe it. So let me get to that point in just a minute. Um, when you talk about uh, eight or 900 gallons, and then he says, take your bill, sit down quickly and write. Wait a minute. Did I skip it? I think I did. So so many of the master's debtors, one by one, he said, a hundred measures of oil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. So he slashes the quantity in half. The value, it's a reduction of 500 denarii. A denarii, about a day's wage, so about a year and a half worth of wages. So I don't, I don't know about you, but you know, if you took your salary, somebody just gave you a year and a half of your salary, you're going to go home and you're going to break open a bottle of champagne. Right? There's going to be celebrating in that household. So, this, so they go home and they celebrate. And remember, remember the connection with celebration in the preceding ones. There's a big celebration when the sun comes home. There's a big celebration when the coin is found. There's a big celebration when the sheep is recovered. And there's a big celebration here too. Jesus just isn't spelling that out. But if you think about it for two seconds, obviously. So you just, you just had a year and a half wages given to you gratis. You're thinking, this is amazing. Let's use a little of it and have a great big party. Let's invite our neighbors and friends. Okay. So just keep that in mind. Then at verse six, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think it's further than that. How much do you owe? Okay. Where, where does he get on seven? Verse seven. Then he said to another, now he's meeting them one by one. So privately, he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. So there's a less of a percentile reduction here, but the value is roughly the same. So again, another 500 denarii off, another year and a half salary. So here's another household celebrating and they're celebrating. Remember, they think he's operating under the authority of the rich man. So there, there they are having this giant party at the windfall. And are they, are they thanking the manager? Well, in part, because he's the one conducting the business, but they're also thanking and blessing the rich man who they think authorized this slashing of their debts. So there's huge community parties going on where the whole is, I mean, neighbors, friends, everybody's rejoicing at this boon and this windfall and this most incredible rich man you've ever seen. Okay. And at the heart and center of it all, even if sort of in passing, is this oikonomos, this manager. Okay. Then we're just told the story is cut short in the midst of all this rejoicing at eight, and Jesus gets very quick, kind of becomes a quarter horse here in terms of the cuts and moves he makes in this sermon. We're simply told, we're not, I mean, obviously the master at some point discovers it. We're not told about how all that went down. At verse eight, we're simply told 
that the master, uh, the Lord, Kyrios, formerly um, the rich man, the master commended the, and I don't love dishonest here as a translation, it's adikias, it's just unrighteous. And that's a refrain all the way through. I mean, it's true enough that he's dishonest, but he's unrighteous. Everything he does is unright. I mean, here's a guy, here's a guy who uses the grace of the master and says, shall I go on sinning that grace may abound? Yes. In fact, that's going to be what I bank on. <laughs> okay. Now that's not a commendable thing as we're going to see. In fact, Jesus is going to say this man's plainly not a Christian. He is a son of this world. So this, don't get the wrong idea that predicating one's sin upon the fact that God is gracious is not a good way of going. All right. But be that as it may, the master commends the unrighteous manager for maybe the most important important word is that it continues on. He doesn't simply commend the manager. He commends his manager for his shrewdness, for his phronomos epoiesen, because uh, for his wise actions, his shrewd or crafty actions. Okay, he leveraged grace and money in order to land himself celebrity status and land himself in the tents as the manager of these other people. Now, they're going to watch him, obviously, because they know he's shrewd and crafty. But he's a celebrity, and so, and then what happens also is he kind of puts, he puts the, the Lord, the master, the rich man in a place where he really can't undo it. These households and these communities are all celebrating him. I mean, cheers, for he's a jolly good fellow, for he's, <laughs> he slashed our debts. Ah. And he can't just simply be like, uh, yeah, no, that was fraud, so I take it all back. Now it's going to turn into like boo, hiss, there's the humbug, you know. So he's kind of pinned into this gracious move. Okay. Now, again, none of these are righteous dynamics. They're unrighteous dynamics. He does predicate his actions upon graciousness, and that works out. That's part of the shrewdness that is commended. He predicates his actions upon Graciousness. Now, not that we Christians would say, well, since God is gracious, let's be unrighteous. But rather, since God is gracious, let us be righteous and righteous all the more. Yeah. Could there be an element? Um, you kind of, I'm assuming the owner is supposed to be God, right? Um, is, could there be an element of you kind of made God more good or more Kind of, kind of. Yeah, so there, I think what you're after, and maybe this would be a good place to bring it up. So there is a dynamic in the in some of the parables that Jesus tells, which sort of in shorthand, I, I, I just call it this. Um, how much more God? Okay, so let me give you a concrete example. Remember the unrighteous judge. He doesn't fear God. He doesn't really give a hoot about justice. 
the woman who's been wronged continues to hound him and persist him. And because she's constantly buffeting him, then he finally renders justice to her in her case. The point is not, this is how God is. The point is, if even an unrighteous judge can be made to do, how much more your heavenly father and how much more will he hear your prayers and do for you? So that you see that what Jesus is saying in the parable is not, hey, this character is identical to God, but this character acted in the way God acts, not because he's like God, but just because of the persistence. So the persistence is part of what translates and what Christians are called to do is to persist in prayer. But in terms of the direct contrast, the judge is unrighteous. If an unrighteous judge will act how much more will God who is just or righteous act, you see? So in a sense, like, I, I, it might be reading a little too much to see the rich man here is God. I mean, there are parallels to be sure. The rich man is gracious. God is gracious. Um, there are parallels to be sure. The rich man commends a certain aspect of what his this unrighteous person does. And Jesus himself commends a certain aspect of what this unrighteous person does. So there are some parallels, but I don't think you could just, like it'd be a mistake. Sometimes you'll find people say, well, the rich man is the father and the dishonest servant is the son. And yeah, kind of that's an issue. Not only to get stuck on this, but is there some element of this guy didn't make the rich man look bad? He didn't say like, oh, he's unjust or something. It kind of, like in a way kind of made him look, you know what I mean? Is that why? Yeah. Well, that, that's all his, well, that's his leverage. Yeah. I mean, that's why he commends him. I think he's going to commend him for two. I think he's a sent what, of what does the phronimus epoiesen of, of what does the uh, shrewdness or the wise action consist? That's the question. Okay. And one second. And I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to assert to you is the content of that shrewdness has two components. The first component is he knows his master is merciful. That's the first component. He predicates his unrighteousness on the mercy. We should predicate our righteousness on the mercy. Okay. That's the first component. The second component, component is he knows how to manipulate wealth to endear himself to others. That he uses, he doesn't see wealth as an end in itself. He sees it as a means to an end. And so that's going to be the parallel for us that when we're called by Christ to act shrewdly, it's those two components that we predicate our actions upon God's graciousness and that we know how to use our wealth not as an end, but as a means to an end. And we're going to see what that is because Jesus is going to spell that out explicitly for us. Now, if you want to do a how much more God with this, with this parable, I think that you can locate it in the dishonest servant. That if the dishonest servant knows his master is gracious and slashes debts, how much more does Christ, the house manager of the father, 
know his father's graciousness and slash our debts. Well, how much more is he does it in full? So somebody wants to make kind of a secondary reflection and a how much more than reflection with the dishonest manager in Christ, um, well and good. And sometimes it gets preached that way. I've preached it that way before. I think it makes sense to preach that way. Um, That's definitely sort of the secondary reflection. The primary reflection is to discover of, of what this shrewdness consists. Because the master who's the good guy commends it, and Christ implicitly and somewhat explicitly commends it. Okay, Chris, did you did I uh, just talk long enough that you forgot? yeah yeah i've heard that reading too but as far as i know that's not well attested and uh, in terms of the history of the reading of this parable and it's just it tends not to be a thing yeah. a few people kind of assert that they're deadbeats but you're reading that into the text Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I I think um, so. So Art Just, our pro, our prof uh, who did the commentary on Luke, um, reads it more or less the way I'm giving it to you, um, more or less. And he's really basing his study on this guy, who's uh, Kenneth Bailey, Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes. Um, I don't know that I necessarily recommend this book. But what, but it's, it's helpful for preachers anyway, because it kind of, what this guy did, Kenneth Bailey, I can't remember exactly how long, but he went and spent like 20 years in the Middle East and studied their culture. And so he, he tries to reflect on it on the basis of the extant culture, which is kind of like a shame honor culture. It's a little different, you know, to our mind, like, how could you ever do an honor? How could you ever kill your daughter out of an honor killing? It's like a totally different way of thinking. So he really goes there, embraces this cultural way of thinking, tells these stories to all kinds of people of different socioeconomic backgrounds, gets their take, and then calls together how it would have been read in that culture and that context. So um, he focuses on the grace component to the exclusion of how to use money, which is kind of mind-blowing to me based on what comes next. So I think that's a weakness of Kenneth Bailey uh, and just kind of more or less does what I'm doing here. I find just less clear than I find myself. <laughs> For me, yeah. when, I, when you read this story, this reminds me of Bill Gates and all them crowds. Um, because it, and the manager is a, a shark and ripping off people, but he's going to make himself look really good. He's like, like I said, Bill Gates. Everybody praises him because now he's a clever actor, but he's really a shark. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know what to make of it. Now, here's, here, here's two data points, okay? So look at verse 1 again. 
There was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was Diascorpitzon dissipating his possession. So we don't know of what this consists, but with the next closest referent being uh, the squandering a la the younger son, who the older brother accuses of spending it on prostitutes and profligate living, it could be the fact that this manager, you know, is using money just hedonistically, using somebody else's possessions that he had a trust over and is just using them for his own pleasures and then gets in trouble for it. And you can see how self-centered he is. Not like, how do I make this right? How do I humble myself? That's like the younger son. I'll go back to my father's house as a hired servant. This guy's like, no thought of that. And this guy's also like, I can't, I can't dig. I'm not strong enough to dig. Is that so? <laughs> I mean, I didn't know there was an age limit on digging or a strength, you know, barrier on digging. Um, and then I'm not, I'm uh, what does he say? I'm too proud to beg or yeah, I'm ashamed to beg. So more likely he just can't beg culturally speaking. Nobody's going to give him any money. He's not lame or blind. He doesn't have an excuse. I mean, this guy's really a scoundrel. He's not a likable character. But also, there's other questions you could ask. First of all, the manager is letting, he, he gets information, but how reliable is the information? You're squandering the money. How did he squander? How did he? It doesn't stay in the text. And the other thing is, the owner of the money, how come he's not overseeing some of this? I mean, you, you, when you're given a job, you're not given free nilly-willy. You're being supervised. So... So, mm, the rich man, yeah, the rich man's too rich to supervise. He doesn't yeah. have time for that. Yeah. yeah, kind of like the king. Who, who, I mean, how did that guy rack up 10,000 talents? I mean, so that's kind of off the table. And then the fact that the that the manager knows that the charges are valid is based on his actions. He doesn't dispute. He doesn't say, well, let, let me face my accusers. He doesn't say what's the evidence. Bailey says that that's, I mean, it's completely untenable in that culture that it even would have went down like that. Even if he knew he was guilty, he would have had all of these sort of social ways of saving gray face and, you know, trying to um, make himself look better and cast aspersion. I mean, just like we do, you know, if somebody charges us and we know we're wrong. We just, we usually make a whole bunch of excuses and, um, yeah, this is, uh, he knows he's wrong. He knows he's been caught. He goes on to, what's my plan now? Whereas before he was using a mammon that did not belong to him in service of himself and his pleasures, now he's going to turn and use it in a very functional way to land himself a new job and a new living. So he knows how to use money as a means to an end. So you're saying he's in politics. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's go. I mean, let's just add a little more data to our conversation because I think I think this will really as much as things get clear, they're clear in the next few verses. So once more at verse eight, the master commended the unrighteous manager for his shrewd dealings, his clever dealings. For the sons, now hey, this is just Jesus speaking. For the sons of this world, there's the first category, are more shrewd, same word, are more phronimos, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. 
So here's, so look at this. You've got the sons of the world contrasted with the sons of light. Which I won't digress on, but this is one of the places in the scriptures that you find this um, title that we almost never use and should start using again, that we are sons of light. That the Father is the Father of all lights. We'll have that come up in our epistle reading this next text. And if he's the Father of all lights, so you remember in the creed, gosh, maybe I'll preach this. I don't know. Um, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. So Christ is light of light. He has that sonship. But then insofar as we are brought into the one who is light of light, we are lights or sons of light. This all hearkens to and points toward our glorification. Okay, but what's his point? I mean, Jesus is hilarious here, I think. And kind of a bitter, sarcastic way. But he's basically saying the sons of this world are more clever in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Like let the scam, the scammers are more clever at scamming each other and using money as a means to an end to get on top of each other than the sons of light are. And now, what's Jesus' point? That we should scam each other? That we should use money to get? No, but exactly the opposite. That we should know how to use money in service of this kingdom, the kingdom of light. So I really do think he's showing, like, look at how an absolute scoundrel uses grace of his master and uses money for his own purposes. What if we used grace and money for the right purposes? I think that that's Jesus' point, essentially. So a little bit more, because he's not done with his teaching on this point. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of, and this is why I like unrighteous for the unrighteous uh, manager, because it's unrighteous wealth. It's the same word. It's unrighteous mammon. So you've got an unrighteous manager who's really good at using unrighteous wealth to get what he wants. In the first case, pleasure. In the second case, a job. Would that the sons of light were equally as clever in using unrighteous mammon to get what we want, which isn't our own pleasure or our our job, but is going to be bent toward the kingdom. And that's where Jesus is going to go with it. So make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous mammon, so that when it fails, and probably death is chiefly in view, although who knows, it could fail for any reason. Maybe especially apropos in our times when the dollar shows signs of waning. When it fails, they may receive you who those whom you have made friends by means of unrighteous wealth, they may receive you into eternal dwellings or skenes, eternal tents, which tents is always the um, the picture uh, in the first century mind for, sh- for certain of uh, the last age. We're all dwelling in tents 
together, tabernacled with God. So an eschatological ending here, to be sure, that's undisputed. So I think I think this is really plainly straightforward. We can make it more complicated, but I think it's really plainly straightforward that Jesus is telling us how we ought to think about money. What we do ought to be predicated upon God's grace and his continued provision, no matter what. And what we do with money ought to be according to the ends and purposes of our generation, the generation of the sons of light. And that's leveraging money to make eternal friends who will welcome us into eternal tents. Does that make sense? Just everyday money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, good stuff. Yeah. And here they're not, here there's no mention of like coinage, I don't think. Um, there's just uh, bushels and gallons and that kind of thing. So just wealth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We'll get to that in just a minute. Um, well, Jesus will. Could you talk a little bit more about I mean, I think I, I hate to be overse- overly simplistic about it, but I think it's just straightforwardly meaning heaven. So I think that this is just a very um, first century Hebrew way of putting it. Did, I, did you have more a more specific question on that? Or um, well, basically, the un, unrighteous wealth is you know, all of this money he stole. Mm-hmm. He didn't earn it. Mm-hmm. He stole it. He stole it in the beginning, and mm-hmm. he got fired, and he stole more money. Yeah. So he's making friends with money he stole. Mm-hmm. That to me is unrighteous. Yeah. Okay. So then, when, when Jesus says, "And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth." So that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. That sounds like he's going to the other place. Mm. His friends. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because that's the way I first read it. Yeah, I don't. I'm not aware of that reading. Let me let me take a look just grammatically again. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, so here he's speaking to his disciples, you plural, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, when the wealth fails, they, those you have made friends, will receive you into their eternal dwellings. So he doesn't want his, I mean, I'm, he doesn't want his disciples to end up in hell. He wants them to, so let me try to draw a di- talking to the disciples. He's talking about this man. Well, let me try it. Let me try a different angle. So you've got the rich man and you've got in the parable and you've got the steward. Okay. The steward is not using any of his own money. Okay. And you'll notice I just changed the word and I did that intentionally. So the whole idea being that we recognize, particularly as disciples, we recognize this, that everything we have is not ours, but it belongs to the rich man. It belongs to the curios, the Lord, the master. So it's all a stewardship. Okay. Those two things are, are parallel. Now, one uses in the parable, the one uses his stewardship, possessions which are not his, to evil ends. But he does so brilliantly. 
Jesus is saying, use that same stuff over which I've made you a steward, use it to your ends, not evil ends, but good and eternal ends. Okay. So the stuff still remains unrighteous in and of itself. And we're going to, we're going to see Jesus clean that up. That'll be the final blow here. Okay. But the idea is you've got the sons of the world. I mean, think of, think of Joe Orange County. Okay. He's a son of the world. Everything he has is a stewardship given to him by God. He uses that on his, for his own pleasures and nothing more. He uses that to save his bacon when his bacon needs to be saved. He uses it for his own unrighteous purposes. God would have us as his sons, as sons of light, realize that we're stewards of all the unrighteous gain of this world. It's not the true treasures. Our true treasures are in heaven in this frame and way of thinking. Okay, Our true treasures are in heaven. This stuff down here on earth is unrighteous, but we've still been given a temporary stewardship over it. We want to recognize that and use it to our ends and purposes, which are not unrighteous ends and purposes, but rather righteous ends and purposes, namely seeing as many people in heaven as we can and being welcomed by them. So again, if we, if we just pull back a little and contrast this, we can, you can kind of see this idea emerge from the parable of the two lost sons. What then is the purpose of wealth? One squanders it. The other is faithful with it. Neither profit. What are we to make of that? So then Jesus draws out a story where an unrighteous man is a steward of what God has given him, and he uses that wickedly, unrighteously, but in such a brilliant way so that exactly what he wants to have happen with it happens with it. And that seems to be what's commended. So that then Christians, we're to learn how to use mammon in such a way that we get ex- we use it to get to happen exactly what we want to happen, which are the eternal purposes of the kingdom. Okay. And I think that'll become a little clearer if, if I can. Let me just read a little further, then we can continue the conversation, because I think the more and more we get of Jesus, the more and more this will become clear. So once more at nine, I tell you, my disciples, is who he's speaking, you make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous mammon, So that when this unrighteous mammon, when your stewardship of it fails, these friends you've made will receive you into eternal dwellings, skenos. And skenos are tents, eternal dwellings. I mean, this is a picture in the first century Hebrew mind of heaven. So it can't be like eternal hell here. Okay, and then look what he says. So again, here, I don't like dishonest. One who is faithful in a very little. What's the very little? The very little is going to be the stewardship over unrighteous wealth. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is adikos, unrighteous in a very little, is also unrighteous in much. So it's kind of like this, like when you're giving your kids an allowance when they're young, 
you set that starting allowance at a thousand a week? Of course not. Little bit. And then you want to teach them to use it wisely. I remember when I first got my allowance, I can't remember what the exact amount was. I got some money for mowing the lawn. Gotta get James started on that. I got some money. And so I remember my dad sitting me down with his $5, you know, $5 and he had it broken down into some change. And he's like, okay, 10% goes to God. That slid over. Okay. Um, now I want you to recognize something else. He said, did you pay for the gas that went to the lawnmower? <laughs> did you pay for the bag? that the grass clippings went into. So I'm not going to charge you that stuff, but you need to realize that's part of your expenses. And then you're going to have taxes taken out also. But since you're under my household and my dependent, I claim you as a dependent on my taxes, I won't charge you taxes. So this was all explained to us and explained multiple times as we, as we grew up. The idea being you're trying to treat, you're trying to teach your kids, um, faithful stewardship and how money really works. You're trying to teach them how to use it and how to think about it so that they'll be, ideally, they'll be faithful in a little and learn to be faithful in a little so that down the road, they'll be faithful in a lot. Now that's just an example of what I think Jesus is saying here that like, I mean, for a completely different angle on it, but the idea is he wants us to be faithful in a little thing like mammon and realizing that it's an end or, or it's a means to an end, not an end itself. So that's the confusion of the world, isn't it? That stuff is the end itself. And what, what are we all trying to do? We're all trying to just, I mean, in a worldly sense, just trying to get stuff. Not this next phone, I mean, this iPhone, then the next generation. And gosh, I got, I got this collectible, now I want the other one. Um, I got this house, now maybe I want a vacation home. Um, when you get to a really high level, it's just, I want to outcompete everybody else. I mean, the wealthiest guys just get absolutely frosted that they're only the 16th wealthiest person on the planet. It frosts them. They, don't, they have every possible end met for them and Anyone they give a rat's patoot about, which probably is a very small amount, because usually that's how that heart goes. But they've got all they need and more, but they're not done earning and earning ruthlessly, even if that means squashing people and ruining lives. They could care less, because all that matters is winning. All that matters is, and in that sense, I mean, they use the means to the end that they desire. So in that, they're shrewd. Why are the sons of light not shrewd? Because we're not so systematic about it. We don't think so clearly about it. We need to. That's what Jesus is trying to shame us into, is to view money as a means to an end. What is your end? Use it accordingly. That's a shrewd way of handling it. But in Jesus' viewpoint, money is a little thing. And if you prove yourself faithful in little, then you'll also prove yourself faithful in much. So one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is unrighteous in a very little is also unrighteous in much. You know, if some guy's like, oh, yeah, you know, my my first job I got fired from because I stole, how much did you steal? 300 bucks. It's like, 
gosh, am I going to hire this guy and put him in charge of my money where he could steal $30,000? No, I'm not going to do that. He was unfaithful and a little. I'm not going to set him over much. Okay, and then verse 11, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, the unrighteous mammon, who will entrust you the true riches? So there's the true riches of the being faithful in much. much. So, I mean, there really is a kind of, I mean, this might rub us the wrong way, but maybe we need to get rubbed the wrong way. And that is low-level discipleship is how we handle money. That's faithful in a little. The true riches and the true management of those riches are something entirely different in God's eyes, in Christ's eyes. So maybe maybe a way of just kind of jumping into this alien thought is that money isn't nearly as important as we think it is, one way or the other. It's just a means to an end. And if we've got our end straight as sons of light, then the means will straighten itself out also. Okay, so we've now got a contrast between unrighteous wealth and true riches at the end of verse 11. And he continues, and if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, now what's going on there? That's the stewardship. That's where you've got the wealthy man and the manager, and you've got God giving us his possessions to have stewardship over. So we want to be faithful in that which is another's, namely that which is faithful in his. And if we're not faithful in those lowly earthly gifts that he gives to us, why would he give us anything greater? Or if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? And this is, you know, this is kind of like uh, maybe the analogy of that I used of like, you know, a father and a son and the giving of allowances and that kind of thing. And it's like, if you're not faithful, I mean, if I would have said to my dad, no, give me the whole $5. And if he refused, I would have watched carefully where he put it and that night snuck down and stolen it. Okay. He's not going to let his hand up off me. He's going to be guiding me because I've proven to be unfaithful, you know, or maybe a better analogy in this is if he says, Hey son, I want you to, this is the good old days. I want you to ride your bike and go get a six pack of Coke at the Seven Eleven. Here's $5. And I went and I came back and he said, how much was the change? Knowing full well, you could get a pack of Coke for $2.99. I said, Oh, there, there wasn't any change. I've not been faithful in that which is another's. Why would he ever entrust me with an allowance to that which is my own? That same dishonesty is going to bear itself out. Okay. So this, I mean, these are strong words of Jesus, but our earthly stewardship is, and, and the understanding of the use of our earthly possessions is a key and fundamental principle that we prove trustworthy in these things, that he might bestow upon us true riches, and ultimately this kind of tantalizing idea that he might give us that which is our own. Mm-hmm. 
sons of light, like you contrast with sons of the world. That's what you riches here and now. We're thinking maybe that's the inheritance we're going to get, the true riches, but I think we have a riches now that soul, saving souls, and giving God true riches to those people who are the testimony. Yeah, no disagreement for me. I would, I, and I agree. I, I, so again, I agree. I think it's a both and. I think it's a both and. Um, obviously, we're given a certain amount of the true riches now. But what we're given now of the true riches, I mean, as Vicar preached this last Sunday, is largely a promise. It's not the real thing. Even the gospel itself is kind of a promise. And in Hebrews, you have that echoing of these died having not received the promise. So these, um, so that's a lot of how this life is. This life is, hey, I mean, I don't, again, I do think it's both and. Christ, obviously, I, who's going to say that the gospel or the Lord's Supper or baptism aren't true riches? Who's going to say the saints on earth and the saints in heaven and the angelic family aren't true riches? I mean, these are the true riches, to be sure, but we only have them in part. We only have a minimal stewardship and use of them the fullness of what's going to be given to us. And in this tantalizing way that it is our own, that is no longer as stewards, but as fellow possessors of it. You know, that's an astonishing reality, but it's the reality held out in the scriptures. I think sometimes we really undercut the shocking nature of the co-reign and co-rule that we've very clearly been given in scripture with Christ. I think sometimes we poo-poo that, well, yeah, but he's the real boss. We're just the underbosses, so it's really no different than now. I don't. I think that that's undercutting the entire joy and principle. I think that's all kind of hidden in this language, cryptically, obviously, who will give you that which is your own. There's a sense in which, in the new heavens and the new earth, you're no longer stewards the way you're stewards now. I mean, if for, if for no other reason, there's no such thing as death. That death, we all have to hand in the books, don't we? <laughs> Turn in your stewardship. You're done. How'd you do? Lord, have mercy. <laughs> and he does. I mean, when you turn in those books, it's like, what's that I see here? Oh, I don't know. It's all blotted out by blood. Where did this blood come? Oh, you know. Yeah, it's the blood of Christ that covers the sins and the failings in our stewardship. But where we've done rightly, he promises to credit that to us and reward, it, and reward us with it. So it's not meaningless. You know, if Christ's blood just covers it all and it doesn't matter in the end, everybody's books are the same, then what was the point of even trying? Why do the scriptures encourage you to try? Why do the scriptures commend those that try? So I think I think the point is, um, yeah, we're all going to be equally not condemned. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But everybody's books aren't going to read the same. And that's an encouragement to strive agonize all the all the words the wrestle all the active words the scriptures use yeah i don't know about mansions but so so i think i think you can think of this in a couple of different ways and maybe the most user-friendly way of thinking about it is just you can do a quick thought experiment with yourself crumb we're out of time I'll try to make this fast. So a quick thought experiment of yourself. Imagine if you said, um, I'm never going to go to a Bible study again. I'm never going to go to church again. 
I'm never going to live as a Christian again. It hurts to live as a Christian. It sucks to live as a Christian. I'm just going to believe in Jesus, live my life, believe in Jesus and die. Okay. Now, maybe, maybe put that in the opposite. Now, let's, since that's a caricature, let's build another caricature that you're going to double down on everything you're doing and do more. Okay. So it's both you live the thought experiment. Let's say you got another, you're given by God another 30 years to live. You live these two ways, you get into heaven. You think you're going to experience heaven differently? Yeah, you're going to be two entirely different people. If you're this guy, if you'll permit an analogy, your cup's going to be like this. If you're this other guy, your cup's going to be like this. Now, here's the, here's the great thing. Will both of your cups be full? Yeah, heaven's heaven. Nobody in heaven goes, well, this kind of was a letdown. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody in heaven goes like, well, my cup doesn't runneth over. You know, um, Everybody's cup runneth over. Heaven is heaven to everybody, but that doesn't mean it's the same. Your appreciation of heaven, your re- receptivity to the heavenly treasures can be like this. Your capacity for them can be like this or like this. So like maybe some of you in the room are fine connoisseurs or connoisseurs of fine wine. All right. I'm not. I usually get a headache <laughs> from wine. So you pour me into my glass, the, the finest wine. You've refined your palate. Okay. You pour yourself a glass. Now, is it the same stuff we're receiving? Absolutely. The same stuff we're receiving. What's my experience of it? Oh, it's wet. <laughs> I got a little buzz. Okay. What's your experience of it? This is exquisite. This is the tops of the tops. This is the greatest. Can you not detect the notes of licorice and sparrow feather and musty moon cheese? And, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah. Okay. So you're experiencing the same thing, but you're experiencing it in two profoundly different ways. That's at least an easy entrance into this idea that there's an organic connection between your life lived here and your experience of heaven there. Heaven is heaven. Your cup's going to be full. You're going to get, in a sense, the same thing as everybody else. We're not talking about like your elevator card only goes to the 30th floor, sir. I'm sorry. You can't know what's above. It's nothing like that. Um, but it is, on the other hand, not this sort of egalitarian, extreme egalitarianism that's like the American ideal of paradise. We're all just perfectly equal. That to God is hell. And God just refuses to participate. Not even the holy angels are equal. And you can see this too in the angel, the different angelic beings who are holy, who are sinless, who exist in his presence. They're created with varying um, capacities and varying um, uh, degrees of proximity to him, varying roles of honor, uh, varying levels, even though, even if we don't know exactly what those levels are, there's a hierarchy amongst the heavenly beings. There's a hierarchy amongst the earthly beings. I mean, if I give my dog a filet mignon, he's going to enjoy it, but not the way he should, you know, not as much as I'll enjoy it or you'll enjoy it, right? Okay, so maybe that's enough um, to tantalize and whet our appetites in regard to um, receiving the true treasures, receiving that which is our own, and the connection between our faithful stewardship in what is little that we might be given that which is our own and experience it all the more richly. That's a fair enough place to break. And I apologize to everyone. We're six minutes over. I hate to do that. I want to be respectful of everyone's time. It's a fair enough place to break because we'll have Jesus capstone statement then 
and 13, where he just flat out says, no servant can serve two masters. And those two masters ultimately are, you cannot serve God and money. So you have to decide which you're going to serve. And if you'll serve God, then money or mammon just becomes an ends, or gosh, I keep messing that up, a means to the end of those things that are God's. What's God's plan? And he wants to gather in as many as possible that all might come and dwell with him eternally. So we ought to use our mammon to that end. That's ultimately where Jesus is going to land with it. So let's, I know there's lots of, lots of questions and lots of room for conversation. Let's break there. I'll hang out if you do want to follow up. Um, otherwise we'll revisit this, uh, briefly next week. And then we'll, we'll go through and what comes up next is the rich man and Lazarus. So you can see how in one sense, Jesus pivots now to this conversation of mammon and our proper attitudes toward it. And boy, does he hit hard with the rich man and Lazarus. Let's pray the Lord's prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.